All right, if you would, take your Bibles, make your way to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. 18 years ago now, I was a senior in Bible college in upper northeast Wisconsin. For those of you that ever watched the National Football League and you see Green Bay Packer games and you see the awful weather, yeah, I went to school north of there by an hour and a half at Northland Baptist Bible College. I was training to be a pastor. I was within about a month and a half of graduating with my bachelor's in Bible. And our Bible college had what they called extension ministries. What those were, were basically, there were area churches all across uh, Wisconsin and then the UP, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, that just needed help. So our school was all about getting involved in local church ministry. So you'd get plugged into a different church up there and you'd serve in kids' ministries. Sometimes you'd fill the pulpit, you'd preach, you'd sing in the choir, you'd clean toilets, do whatever to get plugged into that local church. My extension team, there were about eight of us. We traveled about 45 minutes every Sunday and Wednesday night to a small church in the upper peninsula of Michigan. My junior and senior year, I had uh, resident assistant responsibilities on campus, so I was only able to be involved on Sundays and not Wednesday nights. Um, And this particular Wednesday night on March 31st, 2004, is a day I'll always remember. You see, being in Upper Wisconsin, the weather cycle was kind of like this. I mean, largely just cold, right? But in the spring, it would typically, you know, weather, you had all the snow on the ground still. That was the first dynamic. And then, you know, during the day, it would warm up, some snow would melt off, and then temperatures would drop, things would refreeze at night, and that was the pattern on that day as well. You see, as extension teams began rolling back on campus at night, there was an unmistakable, eerie sound of emergency sirens that began echoing across the woods there where our campus was kind of tucked away. And You see, there weren't a lot of people that lived there other than students, so immediately your mind kind of went to the worst, like, oh no, there must have been some sort of accident. And sure enough, as students began rolling back on campus from their extension ministries, we we heard that there had been a really bad accident. And not too long later, I found out that it actually involved my extension team, the, the team that went up to that church in Stevenson, Michigan. Well, we were waiting for news. We heard that they had hit an icy patch that had refrozen after melting off during the day. They hit an icy patch and the van rolled. And we found out as the the morning went on and as students were weeping and praying, found out that two of my team members and, and friends of mine were fatally injured that night. Sophomore Emily Valentine died that very night. Megan Osborne, a senior, uh, passed away two days later on April 2nd. Megan was a senior. She, we were served in student body together. She played on the women's soccer team that Jennifer played on. Um, Emily's brother, Dan, was on the soccer team with me as well, good friend, classmate, and so forth. And our campus was just in shock. In those kinds of moments when life is most fragile and it's fleeting, you just want to have You want to know if there really is an afterlife. You want to know if there really is heaven. And this morning we're going to look at God's word in the Bible. We're going to find that because of the death 
and then the resurrection of Jesus, we can have hope if we're in Christ. So first, let's look back a couple thousand years ago to the moment in history that changed everything. Before we read our text, let me give you a little bit of background. You see, Jesus had just been in Jerusalem. He'd set his mind toward Jerusalem. He was going there, and he told his disciples on a number of occasions, he said, hey, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mocked, beaten, arrested, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And for whatever reason, like he used very frank language, which is great for us men especially, right? Sometimes we just have to have things said to us in black and white. And yet even then, it was like the disciples, boom, right over their heads. Well, finally, what Jesus had been speaking of had transpired. The Passover had come about and all the good Jewish people from all around the areas, they were flooding into Jerusalem. And you know that on those last days, Jesus was arrested. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was scorned, he was led in a procession outside of Jerusalem on the hillside, and he was crucified as a common criminal, and his blood was shed on the outskirts of town as his arms were raised on the cruelness of that cross, surrounded by thieves. And the disciples, that band of brothers that had been following him for years, well, one of them betrayed him. And the others fled. And they're trying to figure out what just happened. They're grieving the loss of their leader and their friend, Jesus. All of a sudden, their ambitions of like being a part of the inner group of Jesus's, who they, they thought he would be the Messiah. They thought he would be the one that would release them from the bondage of Rome. And they were like, man, if we can get in good with this guy, we're going we're gonna to reign along with him. And they weren't totally wrong on that either. They just got the timing a little wrong. And here we are, and they're scared, they're scattered, they're sad. And the dream of Jesus being the one to deliver the Jews from the hand of the Romans was dead. He was crucified, and he was lying in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So let's pick up in our text in Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at a passage that is not found in the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke are the synoptic Gospels, meaning they see together. They share a lot of the same different stories coming from the same perspective, just different authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. But in this case, the, the passage about these two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, this is unique to the Gospel of Luke. So in Luke chapter 24, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. God's word says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus must have been walking at a faster pace. He caught up to them, right? But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. 
Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish once, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he inter- interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. In this passage, we're going to look at six different points. They all rhyme, they're alliterated. I don't usually do that, but it is a good memory aid, so we're going to go with that today. The six S's are going to be surprise, suffering, seeing, sufficiency, senses, and then supreme. Okay, if you're taking notes. You'll notice, and we're going to reference a few other verses in this text as well in Luke 24, but you see that there was surprise. Even though Jesus had explicitly told his disciples that he was going to die, he was going to rise again the third day, there was shock. It's like the... Roman leaders and the religious leaders and the Pharisees were held on to that more than the very disciples of Jesus. Do you remember? They'd taken precautions and they guarded the body and they rolled a stone and they went to great lengths to make sure that that dead body of Jesus didn't escape. They didn't want his disciples stealing the body and having a real fiasco on their hands worse than the first. And there was great surprise when the women went to the tomb and they found it empty. The empty tomb. And we're going to look at this text a little bit at times through an apologetic lens. And and one of the first ones of this is the empty tomb is like a tremendous reason to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus. 
You see, there's all these other false theories and so forth that are out there that Jesus didn't really die, that he was just beaten, he was unconscious. Some people call it the swoon theory. Well, the problem with that is if that's the case, you still have a living person and just, you know, show them the body. You've got the wrong tomb theory that basically like, well, they got mixed up. They, they didn't have the GPS coordinates in quite right. They went to the wrong spot. Well, again, that all goes to rest if you go and you produce the body of Jesus. You say, no, 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 sorry. The tomb's right here. Let us roll it back. Look, there he is. Boom. You see, the empty tomb was a tremendous problem, especially, and they, the religious leaders knew about it ahead of time. They knew it would be a real issue. You can read the gospel account in Matthew and you read some of the collaboration behind the scenes and, and when the body went missing like they feared it might because Jesus said he would rise from the dead, they came up with the theory, well, the disciples must have stolen the body. You see, there was surprise because the tomb was empty. And again, a lot of the different theories and alternate things of trying to explain away the risen Jesus, it's just, well, what about the empty tomb? If it did not really happen the way the Bible says, well, just produce the body. Show us where it's at. There was surprise. And then as Jesus interacted with these two guys who didn't know what was going on, they didn't know who he was, I think under supernatural blindness in that sense, Jesus explained, and it was explained beforehand even by the angels, that this, what had just happened, that whole mess and that whole melee and that crucifixion and everything, it was necessary. You see, the suffering of Jesus was necessary. In chapters, or excuse me, verses five through eight that we didn't read, it says, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. They remembered it after the fact. But all of those things, it was all a part of the perfect plan of God at just the right time and just the right space for Jesus, the sinless man and God in one, to pay the price for our sins. You see that suffering? The being mocked, being rejected, being told no, being called names ultimately being arrested, enduring a scam in just trial, having false witnesses, being mocked, being beaten, being scourged by a cat of nine tails, catastrophic human beatings that left him marred and broken and probably beyond visually recognizable, and ultimately going to the cross, bearing the shame of your sins and my sins upon himself, the sinless one, and being forsaken by the holy God, the Father. It was necessary. And within the culture and the context that we live in Utah, we live amongst those that sometimes we call Mormons or they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they actually say that the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, was not necessary. 
And that is why when you drive around Utah and you see church building after church building after church building, you will not see crosses. They ultimately see it as a moment of weakness, and they think that the, the atonement took place in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus sweat drops of blood. So for them, the cross is nothing to celebrate. But it was necessary. You see, in verse 25, Jesus says that himself. He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So where does that leave you and I? Well, hopefully that stirs something up within us that man, God in his great love orchestrated this from before the foundation of the world that he would buy a people, a wicked, faithless, rebellious people comprised by people just like you and me. And that he himself would enter into the midst of our sin and rebellion, and he would live the sinless life that you and I haven't lived. And he would ultimately go to the cross to be our substitute so that you and I don't have to experience the wrath of the Father righteously upon our sin. He died in our place, and he suffered for you and for me. And Man, hopefully within our hearts, that's sobering and also it should cry out, hallelujah, what a savior. We see the, in this as well that we see that seeing Jesus takes spiritual eyes. Now I know he, as Jesus interacted with these disciples, these two disciples, Cleopas, we hear his name, we don't know anything really else about him. The other disciple that isn't even named, they're walking, they're returning from all the festivities at the Passover and then how things took a real sideways turn with the crucifixion. I mean, these are people that apparently knew Jesus and walked and they knew the women and they'd heard news that the body was now gone and they're walking, they're going back to Bethany, they're on a seven mile journey, it tells us. They're probably walking for at least two and a half hours. Jesus catches up to them and Jesus plays dumb. Isn't that kind of interesting? Like in order to, order to stimulate conversation, he just, he asks questions like, hey, what happened? Tell me about it. And they just open up and they begin spilling them and they're incredulous. They're like, how could you have been in Jerusalem and not known what just transpired? They told him a little bit. And they didn't recognize him. And I I think that's, um, I think it's a way for us to be reminded that spiritually, that's how every lost person is that we encounter. That's our neighbors, that's our coworkers, that's our classmates, our ball teammates, those that are in the chess club with us, those that, any number of hobbies that you may participate in, that's them. Like, unless God opens their eyes to see the truth of Jesus, it'll just miss. And there's blinders. And, and you kind of see that even with his disciples that, that Jesus made it so that they, they didn't recognize him initially. 
And man, what a conversation they were about to, to get involved in, right? You see, seeing Jesus take spiritual eyes, and that's something that we have to remind ourselves in Utah a lot, that man, these friends, these coworkers, these relationships that we've had for like nine years and, and still haven't seen people come to know Jesus, you know, we need to be faithful, we need to open our eyes, or we need to open our mouths, but only God can open the eyes. We can't peel them back. These are not dumb people that we're interacting with. I mean, when I think of the, the folks in Utah and the, the Mormon culture, I think as a, a highly intelligent, very entrepreneurial spirit, very educated I mean, we're not dealing with people that are academically dumb people. But they're spiritual blindness. And they need their eyes open to see Jesus. And we need to be faithful to tell them who that Jesus is. But God's got to do that work. And so we pray that the Spirit would go and open eyes to see their need for Jesus alone. And as Jesus, as he's walking with Cleopas and the unnamed disciple you see a glimpse into the sufficiency of Scripture. You see, what did Jesus do? You know, he played dumb. He asked them some questions, but then he, he begins to just, like, unwind for them this. God's Word, the Bible, and specifically at that point, the Old Testament, Right? And it begins pointing to them, and it says, man, it was necessary for Jesus to go through this. In verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The sufficiency of scripture. Jesus took the pages of the Old Testament, and he started at the beginning, and he pointed to the Christ. They just didn't know at that moment that that was him right in front of them. And doesn't that just kind of get your wheels turning? You're like, oh man, what I would give to be on that walk to Emmaus on that day, to hear Jesus. And man, I wonder what passages he would have turned to. You know, as I thought about that, you, you begin to speculate. You're like, does he turn to, you know, all the different prophecies that he fulfilled? Did he go to Genesis and say, man, that was Jesus. That was the Messiah creation. In Genesis 3, that was the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. Did he go even to a little bit further in Genesis 3 and like, you know the, how God took the, the garments of the skins of the animals and covered the, the shame and the nakedness of Adam and Eve? Man, the Christ did that for you. That was a precursor. That was a shadowing of what Jesus would become, the covering for your sin and your guilt and your shame. Did he go to Exodus chapter 12? Say, man, God's people were in bondage, but he raised up a leader, not one as good as Jesus, but he raised up a begrudging leader in Moses, and he ended up working through Moses to, to set his people free. But before he did it, man, there was pain and there was sacrifice and there was bloodshed. 
Do you remember that night back in Egypt in which the death angel came and anybody who didn't believe in God and sacrifice an innocent animal and take the bloodshed and it was graphic and it was gory and it was smelly, but if they didn't do it, the death angel visited that house. But man, if there was blood on the posts, the death angel passed over. And there was freedom from the slavery and bondage that they had in Egypt. Did he talk to him about that? Maybe he took them to the Psalms, maybe Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. Maybe he talked about the prophecies, the very first verse that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What about in Psalm 22 where it talks about the bones not breaking? What about in Psalm 22 where it talks about the soldiers casting lots for his clothing? Man, did Jesus go to those spots? Did he go to Isaiah 53 and say, man, the suffering servant, that was the Christ. That was Jesus. Not the one who you thought would release you from the oppression of Rome. He came to be the suffering servant, the priest and the king who will rule and does rule now. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Did he go to Zechariah 9.9 where it talks about this one that would ride into Jerusalem not on a war chariot but riding a, a donkey in the foal of a donkey? Man, it would have been interesting to be on that walk with Jesus and Cleopas and the other disciple. We kind of have to let our minds wander and speculate a little bit of what happened there, but what an education they got. It's also really interesting for us as we look back on this conversation and as we look at the words of Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus believed a lot of things that Christians today think is pretty cool just to, eh, that wasn't really literal. Like, you see the words of Jesus, it seems as though Jesus believed in creation. It seems as though Jesus believed in Jonah. You know, some of these, some of these different things like that, again, oh, well, it's not, it's not scholarly for me to believe that. Well, guess what? It's also not scholarly for us to believe that a dead man rose to life. So why should we have trouble with some of the other things that the Bible teaches us? You see, Jesus had a high view of Scripture. He believed it. He referenced it as truth and history and not a fairy tale. See, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In Acts 17, 11, the, the people in Berea, they were commended because they were people that, that took the words that Paul, that he was teaching them, and they, they just began, man, let's look, let's study, let's see if these things are so, what they're telling us. They dug in and they studied the word. So if Jesus believed the Old Testament, and if Jesus took the Old Testament and revealed to these guys and he began teaching them from page to page how it pointed to the Christ, how it pointed to himself, don't you think we should have a pretty high view of Scripture? Do you think perhaps it would be a good 
investment of our time and resources to, to really see the priority of what Jesus saw a priority in? Like, let's get to know God through our Bibles. Let's look in the Old Testament and let's be looking on every page for the truth as it leads to Jesus. And then in the Gospels, let's see how Jesus lived his life, how he came and died for sinners just like you and me. In the book of Acts, to see Jesus just unleashed in the Holy Spirit and how the church grew and how people were added daily and also the persecution that came with it. And then the instructions to the church in the, in the epistles and then the predictions, the prophecies of how things will come to a culmination. And if you haven't gotten there, you want to be on God's team because he wins. He rules forever and ever. He is a good king. The sufficiency of scriptures, and let's look for them in our devotional time. Let's look for them on every page. Let's look even in the Old Testament when it's like, man, I don't know exactly what's going on here. It's a piece of the puzzle. And let's see it for where it fits. Let's devour his word. Let us see Jesus through the pages of what he's given us. And then you see senses. So if you missed any, we're at surprise, suffering, seeing, sufficiency, and now the senses. I'm talking about the five senses, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting. You see, Jesus, he appeared to the disciples and they saw him. Now it says in verse 31, it says, Cleopas and the other disciples, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Again, I think a supernatural work. And he vanished from their sight. Then these two disciples, they weren't just like, oh, man, that was a cool experience. They were like, they turned around. They'd just gotten to Emmaus, apparently, seven miles away from Jerusalem. They turn around and they go back and they're like, man, we got to find the disciples and we got to like tell them what we just experienced. Like, Jesus is alive. He just took the whole Bible and like revealed himself and taught us. We didn't know it. Now we do. We got to tell people. And Jesus... We see in verse 36, it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them. This is the greater body of disciples now. And said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. You see, in the Old Testament law, a lot of weight rested on the witness accounts of two or three. Guess what? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared bodily to over 500 people. I mean, even according to Jewish law, that would be just an overwhelming stack of eyewitness accounts. 
to attest to the fact that the tomb was empty and Jesus is alive. We saw him with our eyes. We touched his hands. We heard him speak. In a sense, we tasted and and heard of the words. Overwhelming evidence. And again, this kind of goes to some of the theories, the false theories, the, well, the hallucination theory. Have you heard that one? Some people would say, well, you know, perhaps they were all drinking this one Kool-Aid that got a little tainted. They didn't really see a, a person. They saw a spirit. Or, or maybe they all had the same hallucination or the same dream. That doesn't hold a whole lot of weight, does it? There's quite a few holes in that bucket of water. You see, Jesus made it very clear. Um, he walked and he talked. He says he was not a flesh. He asked for something to eat. He appeared to them. He appeared to over 500 of them, as we read, as Paul speaks to the Corinthians. And he wrote it within the time frame that a lot of those 500 witnesses would have still been alive. They're like, okay, you don't believe it? Go find Peter. Go find the half-brother of Jesus, James, who was once a skeptic, and now he's going around, and he's like the pastor in the church in Jerusalem. Like, go talk to those guys. They're still living. You don't believe it? Ask. And then, lastly, we see, in my mind, perhaps the most compelling piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and and the corresponding hope that that should give all of us who have believed in Jesus and are his children. You see, the supreme proof, I think, is the power of the disciples' changed lives. I mean, again, the disciples had just experienced like their worst day. Their dreams just came to a fiery crash and explosion Kingdom wasn't going to happen. Jesus is dead, their leader. They'd already turned in their nets. They'd turned their backs on their lucrative tax collecting jobs to follow that guy, to follow the dream, and now it's dead. Now they're wondering, are we going to be arrested just like what they did to Jesus? Is that going to happen to me? They fled. Some of them go back to fishing. You read in John, toward the end of John, they took up their nets again. They, they went back to what they knew. They were anything but a band of people that you would think would turn the world upside down in the days to come. So something radical happened. And it was seeing the risen Jesus. And you look at church history, you look at the book of Acts, and you begin seeing how it was this ragtag group of people scattered, powerless, and all of a sudden they turn into this band of brothers that go out and they began powerfully telling everyone about the Messiah who had come and had lived the sinless life and died on the cross outside of Jerusalem and who was now alive. I've seen him. He's alive. 
And that was their message for the years and years on end. And you look, church history, there's different accounts, but all except for we think John died an awful death. They were persecuted. Peter, it's said, was crucified upside down. John, there's one account that says that he was even boiled, but he survived. I mean, horrific things happened to these guys, and guess what they didn't do? They didn't recant of this. They saw it. They knew it. They stayed in Jerusalem, and God unleashes the Holy Spirit upon them, and they go out, and they began proclaiming this, and people came by the thousands over these 2,000 years until we sit here today and have been changed by this very message. You know, there's this uh, story. Any of you heard of the name Chuck Colson before? You see, Chuck Colson, and you can Wikipedia this later, but you probably have also heard of the guy Richard Nixon. When you hear of former President Richard Nixon, the word probably pops into your mind, and it's the Watergate scandal. Now, this is before my time. I'm old, but I'm not quite that old. But in the 70s, Richard Nixon was embroiled in this scandal, and Chuck Colson like, was one of his like, hatchet men. Like He was unscrupulous, and he would just go behind the scenes, and he'd get stuff done, and he'd, he'd take care of some dirty business. And he was wrapped up in this Watergate scandal. And Chuck Colson ends up spending about a year in prison for his role being embroiled in this controversy. And Chuck Colson makes this statement. By the way, he came to know Jesus while he was in prison during that process. And he ends up being involved in politics in the days and years after that. He begins being a, a forthright Christian and proclaiming Jesus. And he says this. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years and go to their graves proclaiming it? Absolutely impossible. You see, to the skeptic out there, I would say this. You may want to examine all the world's different religions to see which one is true. Maybe that's admirable. Maybe it's foolish. But perhaps I would say, start with traditional Christianity. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul just kind of boils it, it all down to this, and he says, if the resurrection is not true, then we are of all men most miserable. And what we're doing is totally in vain. So I think we can look at things like the empty tomb and the fact that, hey, if there was a body around, all they had to do was produce the body and all these different arguments and this little sect that was bubbling up, it'd be squashed. You can look at the power of the disciples' changed lives. 
because all of traditional Christianity hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus, the perfect God-man who was our substitute. To everyone listening in person or online, I would encourage you, read and study this book. Let's fall in love anew with it so that we may further love our God and Savior. He's revealed on every, every page. And as we see him for the beautiful God and Savior and creator that he is, we begin to see in the mirror and we see a reflection that sometimes doesn't look really pretty. And we begin seeing areas in which we certainly fall short of our Lord and Savior. And may we allow the power of the Holy Spirit to change us through his power and through the power of his word so that we look a little more like Jesus as we continue to live our lives. The Bible is the living word of the living God that has the power to bring dead souls to spiritual life. I mean, may we have a little bit of the excitement that Cleopas and the other disciple had. Remember, they were willing to walk two and a half hours to go back into Jerusalem and tell people what they'd just seen and heard. We're now at a glimpse in which we have the entire canon of Scripture we know even how things are going to end. Man, let's open our lips and let's just let the power of the gospel and the power of God's word, let's let it do what it will. And that God will just take that and he'll open eyes as he sees fit for people to see his beauty and to see their own lostness. Let's read his word. Let's study it. Let's pray over it. Let's memorize it. Let's meditate on it. But may this be an important time of our days. And by the way, it's like way easier than ever, right? I mean, there's some really helpful apps out there that will even help keep you accountable with other people. You can do a reading plan together. It shows you who's up to date on their reading and things if, if you need a little peer pressure. But there's all kinds of resources that we have at our fingertips to know God. Lastly, let me leave you with some powerful verses that the Bible instructs us on of our living hope. These verses tell us why a cross and an empty tomb over 2,000 years ago now makes all the difference for us today. You see, in the moments that we experienced as a student body on March 31st, 2004, Probably moments that you've experienced already in your lifetime when you're sitting down with a loved one or you get that telephone call or as yesterday went and saw my grandpa, probably on his deathbed. I would imagine he could pass away sometime this week. The resurrection matters. It gives us hope. And it's not just a, man, I hope I win the lottery. It is like a realized, it's going to happen. God keeps his word. You can take it to the bank kind of hope and promise. You see in Acts 24, I'm gonna read a few verses. Acts 24, 15 says this, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead 
dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. John 6.40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hopefully in our text today, and as we've looked at this, we've seen especially three compelling arguments for the resurrection. The empty tomb, over 500 witnesses that saw a literal body of Jesus that was dead and now was alive. And then you see the disciples, how they weren't that weak, cowering band that just went back to their fishing nets and their tax collecting and and ended a life in broken dreams. They instead were a band of brothers that went out through the power of the Holy Spirit And we sit here today celebrating that same resurrection that they could not help but to tell others about. Let's open our mouths and make that known. And may we pray for God to open blind eyes to see his beauty and to see their lostness and need for Jesus alone. There will be a resurrection Jesus paid the price. He paid it all. And God has kept his promises since day one, and he's not going to renege on this promise. There will be a resurrection, and if we are in Christ, man, this should give us such hope. That not because we're good, but because he's good. Only through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus can we have our sins forgiven and know that one day after we pass from this life, we'll be resurrected to be in the presence of God forever. And as we age and as our bodies creak and so forth a little bit more, isn't it wonderful to know that we will have new bodies? And I think as we see the resurrected Jesus, that gives us a little glimpse maybe of what our resurrected bodies might be like. We might even be able to snap our fingers and have the ability to appear and disappear like Jesus did. Who knows? As we're in that new Jerusalem with all the saints of all time saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. 
We have a living hope. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you as we see that in this passage that you have revealed yourself to us through every page. May we see your beauty and then as we gaze upon your beauty, it also reveals to us so many ways in which we are sinners that have fallen short of your glory. And as a child of God who is redeemed and forgiven so magnificently, that should compel us to, to love you in return and to love others. And it should compel us as well to, as we've experienced something so miraculous that has taken place within our own lives of how we went from a blind man to being able to see and how we went from someone who is in our dead and our trespasses and sins to someone who's been made alive spiritually. Help us not to keep that a secret. Give us boldness as we interact with people to, to just let the power of the gospel and the power of God's word and the power of the resurrection to do its thing. And we ask for your spirit to go before us and to empower us and to convict and to open eyes as you see fit. And may you get all the glory. We love you in your name, amen.